Hi, friends, and welcome to the Thursday show of America Can We Talk. This is a different Thursday show than we normally do. Normally on Thursdays, we have one guest in studio, and we have an in-studio audience. We have a very lively conversation, in-depth conversation. However, this week, I pre-recorded an interview just a day ago with Congressman Chip Roy. And the reason I'm doing, what I'm going to do is introduce him to you, tell you about him if you don't know who he is, uh, and then I'm going to play, let uh, have Emilio play the interview. We did about 20 or so minute interview together, um, and I want you to hear what he has to say. But first, I want to introduce Chip Roy to you. Uh, Congressman, and you know, it's, Congressman Chip Roy is from Texas. He represents Congressional District 21, CD 21, and was first elected, I think, in 2018. But before that, his background made him especially uniquely qualified to serve in Congress. He is truly one of the leaders of the conservative movement in the country and in Congress. Um, previously, he served as first assistant attorney general in, in Texas under Ken Paxton, our still attorney general, Ken Paxton. He served as chief of staff to Senator Ted Cruz. He was a senior advisor to Texas Governor Rick Perry, longest running governor of Texas, Rick Perry. Um, he was also a Senate Judiciary Committee staff director. So he's been in and out of Washington and in Austin, Texas, as a thinker, as a leader. He's a lawyer by background. He did some time practicing in the private um, practice of law. So he's got a background of law and policy and as a prosecutor. And he brings just a wealth of knowledge to this uh, seat in Congress. And when I first learned he was going to run for Congress in 2018, I was thrilled. He's a great, great leader. I also want to mention to you part of what he uh, did when he first got to Congress. You know, he's the kind of guy, he's already familiar with the issues. He really was able and ready to jump right in. He'd already been in Washington. He knew his way around, not just, you know, which hallway leads to which hearing room, but the bigger picture of how Congress works, how the uh, bills in, in the House, on the U.S. House side, involve a rules committee, which is an all-powerful committee, a very powerful committee that basically sets the stage for any bill that's going to pass the House, has to go through the rules committee. So he knows how the committees work. He understands... Uh, he understands and he knows a lot of people up there too. He's just uniquely qualified to serve in Washington. So it was a great thing when he ran for Congress. He also, in this most recent episode, when the Republicans won the majority again in the U.S. House, he was among the leaders. In fact, in my perception, he was the leader of the leaders of the 20 or so people who decided they were not just going to rubber stamp Kevin McCarthy becoming the Speaker of the House, but instead they got um, concessions from him and in terms of and many, many concessions I'll talk about in a moment, but concessions before they would agree that Kevin McCarthy could be speaker again. And these concessions we talked through in this show a few weeks ago when we had Wade Miller join us on a Thursday. Wade Miller uh, gave us a great breakdown of how consequential all of those concessions were. I'll just mention, mention a couple of them. Part of what's happened in the past is that the speaker pretty much had all power. Once a, the majority is determined in the House, so it's Republican or Democrat, and somebody becomes a speaker of the majority party. There's a lot of a sense that that speaker kind of rules the roost, runs everything, and and is uh, really other people who are members of Congress feel like they have very little power. One of the broad ideas behind the push uh, to get concessions before Kevin McCarthy was uh, became speaker uh, was to agree we're going to spread power around a little bit. We're going to have more people able to impact things. 
So people have, it's easier for people to get into positions of authority, easier for people to challenge uh, the speaker if they would want to do that, to call him out, to even try to uh, remove him if that's what they want to do. Uh, it was also concessions about, there's that the House Freedom Caucus is a relatively small caucus within the grand scheme of, of Washington, and the House Freedom Caucus is the most conservative organization, uh, caucus within uh, Congress. And the House Freedom Caucus people are often spoken about as a, well, that's the far right. And that division within the Republican caucus in Washington, the elected members of Congress who are Republican, could go to Washington and say, well, that's kind of the, you know, they're the House Freedom Caucus, they're kind of the far right. The truth is, what the House Freedom Caucus stands for are just basic, you know, American mainstream, main street, apple pie ideas but because Washington is so skewed with a just just perennial push for bipartisanship and concession, really normal, average, truly mainstream Main Street ideas are seen as far right. So the House Freedom Caucus uh, for a long time didn't have a place in any of the leadership roles within House committees. One of the concessions that were made when, set, when uh, Kevin McCarthy then finally became Speaker was that there were going to be members of the House Freedom Caucus on the important committees, on the House Rules Committee. So the person I interviewed that we're going to hear from in just a moment, uh, Congressman Chip Roy, um, he currently serves on House Judiciary Committee, really important committee, and a committee where he is unusually well qualified as a lawyer, as a former attorney, assistant attorney general in the state of Texas. He serves in the House Rules Committee, which is kind of like, as I was describing a moment ago, the committee that makes everything else happen. And he's also in the House Budget Committee. He is driven, on, and the reason he wanted to be in the House Budget Committee was he is driven to try to force the changes in Washington to make Congress begin to be fiscally responsible and to dial back the massive spending. And so the House Budget Committee has a really strong role right now in Washington because what usually happens when we are you know, we have everyone runs on the conservative side. They run and say, oh, yeah, we're going to balance a budget. We can't be spending so much money. And they get to Washington and it's easier to vote to continue to spend money, but to imply, you know, down the road, we're going to change this. Chip Roy, as you'll hear in a minute when you hear our interview, you'll realize he actually means it. We are going to take charge of our spending problem in Washington. The House Budget Committee is going to take charge of that. Uh, they're going to be insistent upon serious changes. They're also going to be insistent upon other big changes that came about through this push to get concessions before Speaker McCarthy could become Speaker McCarthy. Uh, other important changes had to do with the idea that we're going to have separate appropriation bills. We're not going to have a massive, massive you know, omnibus bill that meets, that covers the budget for everything and everyone and their brother throws in all of their extra spending ideas, their special, let's do this kind of spending and let's add this in and throw this in. All the people analogize it to a Christmas tree and everyone's sticking on their own ornament. When you do a massive spending bill like that, you get massive spending and often just untethered, un, unreasonable. So one of the concessions was we're going to have separate appropriation bills, more able for individual members to focus on what the bill is supposed to be covering and uh, and what the appropriation bill uh, targets, and then adding things there, taking things out relevant to that particular appropriation package. They also demanded more time to read the bills. All of these things, which were, they were, you know, 
know, it slugged out, uh, not physically, but I mean, it was really a, a knockdown drag out uh, battle within the House before Kevin McCarthy became Speaker. It was to get some changes like this, which are things actually most of them should have been the rule all along. They were not outlandish. What The way things were, the way things had developed, they just were that way because they'd been developed that way. Results of decades of just doing business in Washington that way. So you had over time, it was easier to get into a pinch, and you don't can't don't have time for all the appropriation bills. You throw them all in, you know, big garbage bill, pass it all, move on, and promise next time we're going to dig in and save money. The changes this effort this effort resulted in have really made a change in Washington. And actually, as we'll hear Chip mention in, in our interview in just a moment, it actually has increased the uh, camaraderie among all members um, of the of the Republican caucus because we're kind of all working together now. They're all kind of working together now. So I really want to commend Chip Roy before you hear uh, what he has to say uh, in this interview today. I really want to commend him for be, for arriving in Washington and being a leader. You know, he's He's now entering his, I guess it'd be his third term he's entering. And um, he just has been uh, from the start there just saying, I'm not here to just rubber stamp or do everything my predecessor did. I'm not here to rubber stamp. I'm here to actually lead and to listen to the American people and fix the problems the American people want fixed in Washington and which most Republicans, when they run for Congress, promise they will try to fix. So now let's listen to my interview with Congressman Chip Roy. So I had a great opportunity to come up this week. Congressman Chip Roy, who represents, uh, he's from Texas in the United States Congress, and he happened to be in Dallas this weekend for a week for a variety of reasons. So I was able to get him to come in studio and join me for a short interview. And this is honestly one of the American heroes uh, in Congress because he is he's so strong, stands up, does not waver, and uh, he was available, so here he is in the studio. So welcome, Congressman Roy. Great to be here, Debbie. Great to be in Dallas. You know, my, my uh, son was born up in Plano Presbyterian, my daughter up in Frisco, my wife went to Plano East, so this is kind of coming home a Homage. little bit. good. Yeah. Good, okay. Uh, you know, I um, I found this line this morning. You know, people say how the uh, police are the thin blue line, they, they protect mm -hmm. the people from crime. This really slim Republican majority in Congress hmm. is kind of like the thin red line or between, I mean, what people, they want someone in Washington they feel like are listening to the people because a lot of things seem frightening in America today and seem seem like things aren't going the way they're supposed to go. And I don't know if you like that line or not, but you're, you're the lead, one of the leaders, a thin red line. Well, look, and I think that's a very interesting way of putting it. And, and uh you know, look, it is good. It's a good thing we have the majority. Uh, having a thin majority means that, you know, you've got to figure out how to corral 218. That's not always easy. Uh, we've got disagreements within our own conference, and that's normal. But we have an obligation to do, we, do what we said we would do. We have an obligation to stand up against Biden. We have an obligation to stand up against Schumer. Uh, we said we we're going to cut spending. We should do it. We talk about balance of the budget. We should do it. We should talk about, we talk about and campaign on securing the border. We should do it. We talk about standing up in China. We should do it. So we have an obligation. Absolutely, you do. And um, I want to also commend you. You were one of the, really one of the leaders of the group of congressmen who just wouldn't right away rubber stamp getting Kevin McCarthy back in the speaker's uh, role. And actually about two weeks ago or so, I had Wade Miller uh, mm -hmm. here and we were talking about the great things that came out of the concession. So I don't want to repeat that except to say thank you for standing up and really insisting on 
important changes that happen. So is it feel different already because of the changes that you uh, Yeah, Yeah, two things. This is important. Number one, uh, there's more unity in the Republican conference. People don't really see that. But when you have that, sometimes you got to break a little glass in order to get change and then bring people together. Number two, and this is important, we haven't talked very much about it. We talked about the rules and 72 hours to read bills and those things. But one of the key agreements was to say that we're going to cut spending back to 22 levels, which would be $150 billion and balance the budget over 10 years. That is important because as we head into the debt ceiling fight, mm-hmm. our job, as Wade no doubt talked about, is to go defund the woke weaponized government that is standing up against you, that is undermining your freedom, that is you know, funding an FBI that caused uh, Scott Smith a, a domestic terrorist because he defended his daughter mm-hmm. in a school. So we have an obligation to go do that and go uh, defund that woke weaponized bureaucracy. Absolutely do, and you are. You know, um, I'm going to um, jump in uh, in a bunch of specifics, but first I have meant to mention, uh, in Congress you serve on among the most important committees, House Judiciary, House Rules, House Budget. These are like the leadership ones that set the tone for a lot of other things. They're great committees, I'm glad you, but I'm, I'm glad you're on all of those because they're going to end up being um, important. Are you also still part of the Freedom Caucus? You know? I am, yeah, and I'm the policy director of the Freedom Caucus, and uh, you know, the Freedom Caucus. It was it was mostly Freedom Caucus folks that were part of that effort with the Speaker. The 20, there was a couple who were not, but uh, we're you know heavily engaged in this debt ceiling fight and and meeting on a regular basis. But those committees are important. The Rules Committee can't be overstated. We have three solid conservatives, two Freedom Caucus members, and then our friend Thomas Massey, who's basically Freedom Caucus adjacent. Uh, we have now four Freedom Caucus members on the Appropriations Committee. We've never had that before. This is a sea change now. We got to do something with it, and that's that's what we aim to do. Okay, I agree. So let's start with the border. You know, there was a story, and you might not have seen it today, but they had a story at the border here in Texas. Two migrants were stoned to death by smugglers. I think because they didn't want to pay the whatever you have to pay to get helped over the border. So this border struggle, especially if you live in Texas, it is personal and it is dangerous and it is. I can't even think of a word, unspeakably irresponsible that our own government doesn't enforce the border. So what can you guys do in Congress? What can you do to make that happen? First of all, however bad you think the border is, it's worse. I was in Eagle Pass last week. We still have a thousand people a day coming through just the Del Rio sector alone in that central part of Texas and uh, central part of the Texas border. Um, And to your question, what can we do about it? Well, you first have to understand what's happening. And your listeners are pretty educated, so they're going to understand, but it merits repeating. The crisis right now is being caused by the policy choices of this administration and anybody, Republican or Democrat, who allows them to get away with it. What are those policy choices? Releasing people into the United States, essentially in violation of law, hiding behind asylum and using parole, which is a technical uh, provision that is supposed to be used on a case-by-case basis. So to understand it, we are releasing people into the United States without adjudicating their claim for asylum. Once you do that, you end up with 8,000 a day. You end up with the cartels who are empowered. You end up with fentanyl pouring in because our borders are not being policed properly. You end up with China being empowered. You end up with dead migrants like the ones you just described getting stoned. You end up with little girls who are in a stash house as you and I are sitting here talking. There's a little girl in a stash house in Laredo or Eagle Pass or Houston or San Antonio. And you end up with dead Americans from fentanyl, like the four kids in the Hayes ISD south of Austin, where I live in Hayes County, who have died in the last six months from fentanyl poisonings, and the poor father of one of those boys who testified in the Judiciary Committee about their loss. That's the result of a policy choice by this president and this Secretary of Homeland Security. 
Is it really just policy choice or is there more of an agenda? Why, why is Biden doing this? Yeah, I think it's an agenda. It's beholden to the radical left who doesn't believe in borders. They don't believe in sovereignty. They don't understand that the rule of law and sovereignty is paramount to a free state. We can have big open doors that we then decide who can come in and when, but you can't just have wide open borders. Look, this is why I introduced HR 29, a bill to say that the Secretary of Homeland Security shall detain for the entirety of the adjudication of their claim for asylum or any other claim or turn away like they do under Title 42. When Title 42 expires in May, we're going to have a serious crisis on our hands. And yesterday, the Biden administration put out a rule that they said will fix it, and it won't. If you go talk to the experts on the border and Border Patrol Union and others, they will tell you that it's all window dressing. We've got to stand up for a secure border because it is good. This is important because, you know, as Christians, as Americans, as people who believe in, 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 in caring for humanity, this is terrible for migrants and Americans alike. We should be exporting the rule of law to Mexico and having a strong Western hemisphere pushing back on China's intrusion rather than importing lawlessness and fentanyl into our communities. We could choose to do that. The Biden administration chooses the opposite path. It's a violation of their oath. It's a violation of their duty under the Constitution. I think it's impeachable. But what it most certainly is, is something that we should use the power of the purse, which Congress controls, to demand change. That was my next question. At some point, one of the things you can do, uh, the Constitution gave the House, the House the power of the purse, is to say until these things are done, money can be withheld. Correct. Federalist 58, James Madison, articulated very clearly that the power of the purse is the most effective weapon a free people can give its Congress against the executive branch and the tyranny thereof. So we have an obligation to use the power of the purse. And too often Republicans just go, oh, well, because of defense, we just have to write a great big check. You can't do that, Chip. Oh, default. We'll default during a debt ceiling fight. No, we will not. We have a duty to actually spend money properly and to not borrow more money to fund a government that is at war with you and me. And that's currently what the Biden administration is. They are. And actually, it leads me to the next point I was going to say about how people feel in America. They do feel it. People say, oh, we're really divided. But that can sound like, you know, we can't agree whether we want to have the speed limit be 55 or 65. Right. It's, it's a core division of whether we want to have a future of a sovereign America, a sovereign nation state versus what Biden is enabling by opening the border, which is we have a massive uh, influx of people who have no right to be here, who are, are not accountable and would be potentially in the future a massive new voting base for the left. Well, and the the irony is, I mean, they think that, and they're trying to import a lot of people uh, for for a variety of reasons. And again, it's also not just the the voting base; it's also just a lack of belief in sovereignty and borders, right? It's a, it's a new world order. They actually yes. use the term a new liberal world order. So that's actually critical to understand. But look, I think to some degree this can backfire. Look at what Trump was able to do successfully moving voters in South Texas. We came up a couple of votes short in some seats in South Texas, but look, Cassie got over 40 uh, percentage points. She got like 43 or 44 against Henry Cuellar. Uh, we saw Myra Flores, who got elected last summer. She unfortunately lost in November, but she still got over 40 points. Monica De La Cruz won in South Texas. We're moving the needle. Hispanics want border security in South Texas. Yeah, I, I could not agree more. They do. And, and many people watching what's happening to America, I, I just think the thinking of the left, it's always kind of, we're going to compartmentalize, we're going to have the Hispanic vote, we're going to have the black vote, we're going to have the women's vote. 
and people actually are thinking and they're watching what's happened to their country and and i think that whole we're going to maneuver you around based on uh, your skin color ethnicity national origin it's not going to fly the more alarming america seems and america seems alarming to people right now no question and look democrats want to use race to divide us it's purposeful and intentional and it's not just with respect to the border issue where they want to say oh you don't like brown people you want to secure the border because you don't like brown people it's a lie majority of border patrol are hispanic and they want to secure border a majority of hispanics in south texas want to secure border and fight against cartels this is all about identity politics the same thing driving diversity equity and inclusion the same thing driving the critical race theory marxist agenda they want to shove into our schools to divide us by race because they were failing on the class warfare because exactly. america's prosperity was lifting all boats we were creating wealth and opportunity for americans across the, the spectrum so they realized we got to use race politics to create guilt to force them to put more power into the hands of federal bureaucrats to undermine our freedom well you know what the gig is up and we're going to stop funding it and we're going to go to war with it because they're at war with our way of life and the very freedom that creates prosperity and well-being for the very people that they say they want to help absolutely true i was going to say the whole critical race theory has, i just finished doing a show a little while ago uh, on that subject it's just it is so uh antithetical to everything America is, the idea of America. We're just gonna divide by race and yeah. Anyway, so we're being all counts. I wanna turn, cause I know we don't have a ton of time and I wanna let you get to your um, next thing you have to do, but uh, I wanna talk briefly about China and then about the woke military. Sure. On the subject of China, mm -hmm. you know, I've had many experts on the show many times talking about China and Gordon Chang will talk frequently about their determination. They really want to be the world's one superpower. That is how they see themselves. They intend that someday. And they're engaged in a variety of ways of undermining America. You know, that you're probably familiar with that 1998 book written by the two Chinese generals where they talked about right. how, yeah, how are we gonna take down America? So people see China as a long-term mission so then we look at Biden in the White House and what we learn from the Hunter Biden laptop is, you know, first of all, is it your sense is, is Biden in a compromise with respect to China so he really can't stand up for America in the way that he should and fend off this attack from China? Well, let, let me answer this a couple different ways. First of all, China itself, obviously an enormous and growing threat. Uh, tentacles reaching far into the United States. I don't know why we're allowing Chinese nationals to buy, buy up land in America and to own food processing plants. I don't know why we're allowing China to have such a reach into Mexico and across the Western Hemisphere and, and be a part of colluding with cartels to endanger us. I could go down the road of all these different issues. Uh, but here's what's critical to understand. We can, we can, we can absolutely demolish China uh, when we allow America to be free and to do what we do best. They have their own economic problems. They have their own uh, sociological problems in dealing with their population, all their population controls that got them out of whack in terms of their ability to produce population going forward. Um, we can actually easily demolish them if we get out of our own way. Stop limiting our ability to produce oil and gas and energy when we're sitting on an absolute mountain of oil and gas while they're polluting the atmosphere massively and we're constraining our own growth. To your point about Biden, uh, absolutely Biden is is uh, compromised. Uh, we know this. Now, I'm not gonna get into the weeds of some, some of this stuff, but just what's already reported, what we already know, what we know about Hunter Biden's relationships in Ukraine raises certain issues. What we know about their engagements in China raises certain issues. Uh, but our mission in Congress is to expose the truth and get the American people to understand that. We've got committees designed to do that. 
I'm going to stay focused on trying to figure out how to get our spending down, get our economic growth going, secure the border, win the policy issues while we're continuing to do the the, the necessary work of talking to folks and, and do the uh, committee oversight work. There are, I know it is a committee that you're on, but one of the new committees that Kevin McCarthy mm -hmm. created deals with China and exposing the threats. So what is Congress's power if you, even if you uncover and say a whole variety of issues, is there something that that committee can do as the uh, House members? Well, the China, to counter it? yeah, the the, the uh, committee on China, uh, as well as the Weaponization Committee, which yeah. was a part of our negotiation uh, to focus on the weaponization of government, they'll all be looking into all of this. I mean, we haven't even talked about the uh, origins of COVID and what we've been dealing with with China yeah. on that that issue. Um, there are lots of things they could do to expose those committees. Aren't legislative jurisdiction committees? We'll have to do that on on uh, you know Homeland Security, on Judiciary, on. Uh, you know, armed services on foreign relations are places where we can do legislative, uh, take legislative action. But the most important thing is to expose it and then go beat it at, at the level where we're connecting with the American people that to beat China, we need to restore American greatness and to get the government out of our way, create economic growth. Why are we talking about, oh, we can't balance the budget because we only have 2% economic growth? No, that's defeatist mentality. That's the mentality of Jimmy Carter that Ronald Reagan ran over. And again, God bless uh, Jimmy Carter uh, yeah. here right now. But that's the that's what we're dealing with right now with Biden. We should have 4% economic growth. We should unleash American uh, uh, entrepreneurial capability and go beat the snot out of everybody around the globe and create economic uh, prosperity here. Couldn't agree more. But back to what really motivates Biden, which I find the most troubling, for example, right after he came uh, to office, one of the first things he did was attack American energy mm -hmm. and energy production. And he continues to. And his his homeland, uh, what's her name, Deb? Anyway, the, the woman, anyway, his policies end up continuing to suppress American energy production. And I, I mean, what do you think is the reason? Well, this is the climate fetishism. You, you know, think that, it's just that's climate? Driving. Yeah, this is all about what they're trying to do with, the, with, the, with that agenda with respect to their their worshiping of climate change rather than worshiping the lord in this great planet that he gave us we can in fact reduce co2 while creating the the the, the uh, engine for the world with clean burning natural gas nuclear power but instead we're limiting our ability to do that right here in texas okay right. I, I i'm going to speak to the texas legislature and governor right now the fact that texas is going to have 50 percent of its grid being produced by wind and solar after the two events we've dealt with in the last three years and how often our grid has been right up to the edge of, of collapsing is absolutely insane. And the uh, so-called uh, in Inflation Reduction Act that they passed last August puts all of that on steroids. So everybody understands the federal government is paying, subsidizing companies to build wind and solar farms at the expense of the actual gas-fired and coal-fired plants and some nuclear plants that are the backbone of your electrical supply. And they're doing that while telling everybody, oh, look at all this green stuff we're doing. No, and meanwhile, this is important. China has 1,100 coal-fired plants and they're building a new coal-fired plant every week. We, meanwhile, have no coal-fired plants in the pipeline, few gas-fired plants in the pipeline, and we are now retreating on the uh, stage of having uh, national energy dominance. Couldn't agree more. You know, I've asked about Biden because I think when you recognize that energy really drives an economy, mm -hmm. energy drive, it gives abundance, it gives prosperity, it gives opportunity, it makes the system, makes the country flow, and you work so hard to shut it down. And it's not like we're getting along with less. He's trying to buy energy from Venezuela, from Iran. 
He's there. There's a sinister. There's a concern. There's a sinister agenda going on there with Biden. He doesn't. Why would you not want America's energy to be to be as as strong and great as it, it's an attempt to weaken America? So my considered judgment on this is that there's a mix of things going on. Obviously, President Biden isn't isn't at his most, um, you know, strongest intellectual uh, place in life at the moment. You've got an enormous uh, group of individuals around him who are all the kinds of people that sit around at like Yale and Harvard and little study groups thinking that their random leftist ideas are somehow a great idea. Now they're actually putting them into practice yeah. and the American people are going to be the ones that have to have to carry the burden of what they're doing. I think it is a mix of things purposeful by a radical left who doesn't believe in sovereignty, who believes in a, in a world order, uh, people who don't believe in the rule of law. They, they, they believe in actually undermining that because they think police are evil. They think the rule of law is evil and biased. Uh, they've been in, indoctrinated for at least two generations, maybe three, by an education system that has been teaching them to feel guilty about the greatness of the rule of law and the principles this country have espoused that have created more prosperity and opportunity for more people of all walks of life, all colors, uh, all backgrounds, uh, both sexes, there's only two, uh, across this entire country and, uh, and world, frankly. And more people, let's just be clear, I'm a Christian, more people know Christ around the world because this country has been free and producing wealth through economic uh, opportunity, through capitalism and freedom and through our Republican form of government. Um, we, we have an obligation to stand up and defend the next generation of, of Americans, but also to have a strength around the world and expand uh, the American exceptionalism that they don't believe in. Agree on all counts. You know, the committees that uh, Kevin McCarthy has created, which are there, I loved all of them, I mm -hmm. guess. And part of the creation of them was because of the holding back sure. and getting him uh, into the position of speaker. But those committees are really important because even though they're not legislative, if they put the things you're describing out for the public to understand, so you have hearings and people, because I do think there are many Americans who would never really want the agenda. They don't want where we're headed, but they don't see it. And they think that a lot of what's happening is just, well, they're trying to enforce a border, but you know, it's really hard because a lot of people are coming or they're trying to just make America more uh, energy, self or energy, uh, clean energy driven. So, and they think it's innocent. And I think that to the, these committees can do an amazing good for America, uh, more Americans who might support the left-wing agenda to recognize where it's taking us and and i so they, they can just be enormously consequential and then you can do all the legislation you want after that well you know look i totally agree and and i think this is one of those things that we're having to do we're having to make up for an education system that have been frankly polluting the minds of the youth for too long and i think we have an opportunity to do that right now look covid opened up the eyes of a lot of parents yeah there are a lot more parents who are choosing homeschooling a lot more parents who are choosing private schools, more parents who are now invested in school boards and getting the right people elected because they're going, wait a minute, you're teaching my kids what? Yeah. Now, we've got miles to go on that front to, to save the next generation, but we also have to fight to save this world right now. And the way we do it is what you just talked about. Go take the truth to the American people. I give Everywhere I give a speech, I try to make sure they understand. We have 250 coal-fired plants. China has 1,100. They're adding one a week. We're adding none. You could eliminate every car, every one of the internal combustion engines you see right behind us driving all over this country. Get rid of them all. And you would only reduce uh, CO2 by a fraction, by a couple of percentage points. And China's going to blow right past that. We are absolutely decimating our way of life in a false pursuit of the climate fetish gods. And we are undermining prosperity for the poorest in the world. We can turn that on its head. 
before the poor. I mean, as Christians, we are called to look look out for the, the least among us. So we can go on offense on a secure border is better for migrants and Americans alike. A strong energy policy is better for our economic opportunity and growth around the world and for poor and, 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 the, and the middle class alike. We can advance an agenda that is on security and have a strong national defense, but choose to exercise it carefully, sparingly, not to be involved in endless wars. American people want common sense. Thomas Paine wrote common sense, right, leading up to the revolution. We need a dose of common sense in the 21st century. Absolutely, we do. And I know we're almost out of time and you need to go to your next event. But I do want to ask you, you have spoken up recently about the idea of trying to correct or, or expose the woke military agenda yeah. and how to fix that very quickly. Again, what can Congress do about that? Sure. First of all, I'm glad to partner with Marco Rubio, senator from Florida, to produce a report back in, I think, November we put it out. Uh, highlighting a lot of the woke agenda in the in the military. Uh, you guys have seen it. There's been a lot of news accounts. Uh, the Air Force Academy and notoriously was you know talking about oh well you don't refer to moms and dads that might offend some people. And then the Marine Corps was doing a study. They actually spent money on a study about well maybe we shouldn't say sir and ma'am. Uh, you know, they're trying to undermine all of the traditions, and that's also purposeful. And they're still kicking or making life miserable for the men and women in uniform who chose not to stick a needle in their arm, even though they, they can't fire them. They're making it hard for them. That's a whole other story. But what we can do at DOD is stop giving them a blank check because the war hawks among Republicans go, oh my God, we have to give them a blank check because China. No. If you don't have a military that is instead of focus, that, that, that is woke, if you have a military that is woke, Instead of a military that is focused on killing people and destroying things, you're going to lose. You can fund it all you want, but you're going to lose. We can't recruit right now, Debbie, because our young men aren't going out there and going, oh, yeah, I'd like to have a training about transgenderism instead of learning how to hop out of a helicopter and shoot people. That's why young men go to the military. They want to figure out how to go defend the country. So we can expose it and highlight it. But at the end of the day, I'm going to beat this drum as long as I'm in public service. Stop funding the tyranny that you oppose. Republicans campaign against this stuff, and then they fund it. Hold Republicans accountable, all you listeners out there. Ask your Republican member of Congress or Senate, are you voting for the crap you campaigned against? Are you funding the crap that you campaigned against? Love that. You know, on the subject of the military, one last point, the idea of it going woke made it weak. I've had yep. many people from Air Force Academy, other places talking about that in the show, just about when you're, you're just fixated on my pronouns or some other woke agenda, you're not really instilling uh, camaraderie. You're not instilling uh, the kind of fighting force you need, right. everything you need. Um, and then the last point is just how Reagan, that idea of peace through strength, and our sure. military was so strong. The world, I mean, Russia looked at us and said, um, I don't think so. I mean, we that's what we did, and that's what we've got to get back to. I totally agree. Look, we we brought the Soviet Union to its knees with effectively the triumvirate, but certainly the combination of Reagan and Thatcher, the triumvirate being the Pope at the time, right, Pope John Paul. And we yeah. were able to actually win the battle of minds across the world because we stood up with a strong military. But think, how many times did Reagan use it? It wasn't a lot. Right. I mean, yeah, we went over to Libya and he, he you know, uh, uh, fired a missile into Gaddafi's tent or whatever. Um, but but we didn't do a lot. Uh, we don't need endless wars to show strength. And in fact, that weakens us. And this is important. I wrote a Wall Street Journal uh, op ed uh, two weeks ago with my friend Victoria Coates, former deputy national security advisor for President Trump. She's now with the Heritage Foundation. I would commend to your listeners. Go read that op ed, because in it, we talk about the extent to which our fiscal strength 
is critical to our ability to have national security strength and a strong military. You cannot have a strong military if we're going to be spending more on interest for our debt than on our military, which we are about to do in about four or five years. We're headed there. We can stop that, but you can't write a blank check to the military. We can get on a path to fiscal sanity. We're going to do it this year. We're going to go after the woke weaponized government, cut $150 billion, hold defense spending in check, demand that they end their woke indoctrination, and then get busy figuring out the mandatory spending in the long term so we can get on a path to balance. But we need a down payment to pull our fiscal house in order this year, and we're going to demand that as part of the fight. Down payment means, I'm sorry, tell me what you mean by down payment. You know. Well, I mean a down payment. We want real cuts this okay. year. None yeah. of those out-year things. Now, we, we can't balance the budget in one year. We barely can figure out how to balance the budget in 10 years at this point. It's so bad. But we need a down payment this year. That's a $150 billion cut this year, return to 2022 levels in spending. And we need to go get the money that was not unspent COVID dollars, which is about $100 billion. And we need to make President Biden end the national uh, public health emergency and the student oh. loan programs attached to it, which are about $400 billion. That's about, what, $650 billion in real savings this year. And if we cut the, the, the money, the $150 billion, that means we can save $3 trillion over 10 years and, and start down the path to fiscal sanity. A lot more work to do after that. Congressman Chip Roy, thank you so very much. I know you're busy. Thank no, you for taking time to come in. It was just great to see you, and I love your energy. I, I, I don't believe in cloning, but if I did, uh -huh. I would want to clone you and get a few more like you up in Washington to just, just take this fight to the... To the to Congress and to the left and to and to the people on the right who need it too. Well, I would say the same thing about you, Debbie. Keep it. We need you. We need to keep getting all the truth out to the American people and keep folk, folks fired up. My last point to all listeners out there: hold your members of Congress, your state legislators, your local officials accountable. Call them. Show up at their office. Go beat the the halls of both Congress and the legislature to stand up for America. Okay, Congressman Shiproy, thank you so Thanks, very Debbie. much. Appreciate Great to it. see you. And now that you're finished hearing from Chip Roy, I, I want to play one clip of him. This is what Chip Roy had to say shortly after the State of the Union, when um, Biden's ridiculously obnoxious, stupid, weak, terrible State of the Union. This is what Chip Roy had to say on the floor of the U.S. House. When we fund the government this year, things better change, Mr. President. You come down here and you make threats to us about what you think is going to happen with respect to default. You come down here and lecture us in the people's house? Well, let me tell you, Mr. President, we're a co-equal branch of government. And we're not going to allow the American people to continue to be targeted by the very government that is supposed to protect them, that is supposed to do their constitutional duty, that is supposed to secure the border of the United States, that is supposed to stop fentanyl from coming in, that is supposed to have operational control of the border so that neither Americans nor migrants are dying that is supposed to stop dangerous cartels, that is supposed to stand up to China, that is supposed to have a strong military, sparingly used but not woke. We're not supposed to spend money we don't have. We're supposed to balance our budget. We're supposed to defend the American people. And I'm not going to agree, sitting in the Rules Committee or on this floor, to continue the process of spending money we don't have, of not changing the status quo and not demanding, demanding that the president of the United States act like it, act like he's the president, defend this country, secure our border, 
He doesn't get to come down here and lecture us. The people's house decides how dollars get spent. The people's house represents the people. Actually, yesterday with Congressman Chip Roy, and I was very grateful he was available. And I want to embellish on some things he had to say and talk about them because the issues we'll talk about going forward. You know, for a long time, if you think back like in America's situation uh, politically and how we thought about war, you think back to the Vietnam era, you know, there was a sense that it was the um, you know, the Republicans were strong, were pro-military, and we had a, you know, an, and the left was in the middle of the whole meltdown and the peace of love protest and the, you know, all that happened in the 60s, the, the kind of counter-revolution. And it got set in some people's minds, the idea that, well, if you're Republican, you're not maybe pro-war, but you're certainly, you know, you're, you really want to be strong and America has no hesitation to send our troops out if we need to. What's happened over the years, and why I wanted to wait till after you heard uh, what Chip Roy had to say, was it really has been a an evolution of thinking with respect to national security and how we best implement national security and how we think about who really benefits from uh, America's military and, and how it should be used. And I'll be more specific. So we had a warning, obviously, years ago about the military-industrial complex. And that idea was that essentially, you know, if you have the military buying massive equipment from massive manufacturers in America, then, you know, those manufacturers, they maybe wouldn't say they want war, but they want to produce, they want to make money, they want to have a business, they want to produce more weapons, more machinery, more uh, you know, fighter jets, more equipment. So the production of expensive military equipment is an incentive, and you only need to produce it, of course, if you have people who are uh, anticipating war or planning for war. And that whole military-industrial complex, we were warned, is skewing. It skews the um, the right thinking about what is what is our military, what should we be doing, what should we get be getting involved in. And, tr and President Trump was really unique. And when he ran for um, presidency, he talked about, you know, way back, I mean, before we even got in our current mess that we're in with um, around the world, um, he talked about how there was a need to not um, to not have America always be so militarily engaged in every battle that happens around the world. He was he talked about the blood that was shed, American soldiers' blood, innocent citizens' blood shed uh, in international conflicts that maybe really didn't have to didn't need to happen and shouldn't have happened. So he was talking about you know using the military wisely and using the military when we need to defend ourselves. But we don't really have to be sending our military in to every conceivable uh, conflict. So President Trump, it was kind of a more modern version, a more adult version, a uh, modernized today version uh, of what the military should do. So you had Trump saying that. And then uh, one other piece of the history I probably should have said first was how Reagan realized early on when he came in to the presidency, he realized in 1980, he realized that we don't need to necessarily be sending troops everywhere, but we need to fight communism. And he developed in his uh, ideology and his thinking during his presidency uh, that we would have peace through strength, meaning if America's military was strong, was well armed, was well trained, was really ready to 
fight that many nations around the world may be thinking of engaging in some kind of hostility or are provoking other, other countries would rethink it because they recognized how strong America was. So Reagan got on this idea of peace through strength and really through his determination in the Cold War really brought around really the collapse of Russia, the collapse of communism without having to send our troops over and attack Russia. It was a modern version of warfare. It was brilliant and it was right and it was important to do. So Reagan had that idea, peace through strength. And then we had the, um, the, the uh, moving forward to now to what Trump was saying, you know, Trump was talking too about the needing to rebuild our military. Uh, you know, I'm, what I'm trying to get in all this conversation today is, is a kind of unique show was when you we had we had Congressman Roy in here. He was talking about this too, and I think it's important for real students and real patriots, to, uh, students of American history, and students who, uh, people who just love America to think about when. Reagan got on the idea that when we are strong, we keep people at bay. We keep the bad guys cowed and, and, and suppressed and unwilling to make, to make challenges. He really hit on something that we're learning again today, that we, that we need to do today. And so it was build a strong military because then we didn't need to use it. Now, Reagan fought other ways. He was the master of the idea of the Cold War against Russia, which in his case meant economic warfare, propaganda warfare, all sorts of political alliances he created. He succeeded in weakening Russia through a variety of means without using military force. It was a great thing that Reagan did. And so when I started talking a minute ago, I was talking about how, you know, you used to think, well, Republicans are strong military and the Democrats are anti-war, but that's not really the paradigm. That's not today's paradigm anymore. When you think about what both happened under the Obama administration, the Obama-Biden administration for, 12, for eight years, and then again now under the Biden administration, you see a weakening of the American military. You see, and it started uh, really under Obama and Biden, the idea of turning America from having a fighting force well-trained, ready to fight, well-armed, well-equipped, healthy, strong, up to speed, the last the last possible development of whatever weaponry is needed, people who are physically ready to fight. We needed a fighting force military, and that's what we had. But what the aim of Obama and Biden was, to, was to weaken America's military, and it was to weaken America's military uh, without consciously admitting that's what they were doing, without saying to the American public, hey, we're going to weaken the military. So they engaged in this, what Obama had, and it's been, you know, we've talked about the show before and other people have talked about it too. There was really a calling out, a cleaning out of top level military leaders during the era of Obama and Biden pulling out people who were the real patriots, forcing them out, forcing out strong pro-America thinkers. So the upper ranks of the military became more and more filled with people who were more leftists, who would rather discuss, in today's terms, pronouns and transgenderism than know how to fight. And so right now where we are, and what I love about what Congressman Roy had to say was, you know, in Congress, they are the ones that fund the military. Now they fund, I mean, the Constitution provides the U.S. House is the, you know, not the Senate, the House is the one that initiates the spending bills, and they have to agree on spending. 
So the way in which we can uh, adjust and we can impact the weakening of the military has to do with spending. But what he was getting at was we have something like Eisenhower's uh, reference to the um, military industrial complex kind of in play again today. We have, you know, we have the uh, companies that build tanks and machinery and, and ships. You know, they want to have production uh, made. They want to have it done. But we also have the left doesn't really want to engage the world at all. They do not want to engage the world. They don't want to, they don't want to stand up against communism in the world. So this whole confuzzled mess of, of priorities and, and aims net, nets down to the points I want to make in kind of wrapping up this, this uh, special Thursday edition. It is a beautiful thing to have the leaders of the United States of America believe in America. The leaders of our military believe in America. And by that, I mean not just believe it's a nice country, but believe in the ideas of America and believe that America needs to be a strong, sovereign nation capable of defending itself, capable of defending our, our allies, capable of fighting our enemies. Because America military being strong keeps enemies, as Reagan taught us years ago with the, in the Cold War, uh, keeps the bad guys at bay. So this idea of having a strong military, it doesn't mean, it does mean funding the military, but it means having the mindset of the military re-engage with loving America and defending America as a primary goal of what the military does. And when the military has that mindset, they don't need to be spending time discussing pronouns or any other social justice ludicrous agenda. They need to be training people to be able to fight, to be, to be physically strong, mentally strong, able to fight, and able to be a united fighting force. Because if we're strong, we won't need it as much. But what's happened under, sadly, during the Obama era and again under Biden is the weakening of America's military. And as America's military is weakened, and it is intentionally being weakened, as it is being weakened, we in America have, uh, we have, we see more aggression around the world. We see Russia more willing to push against Ukraine. Now Russia threatening nuclear war because of the, the situation of the Ukraine. We are in danger in America because we let first under the um, Obama-Biden era and now again under, under um, Biden, we've seen the military deeply, deeply weakened. And because they've been weakened, we have we, we have more aggressors in the world willing to, to stand up and fight. So this agenda of the, of, the, uh, of the right, of the conservatives in Congress to re-strengthen America's military, speak up about America's military, say what it is that oh, needs to be done, and, and get rid of the political correctness and get them back to being the fighting force, it'll make America safer. And so the party that we used to think, Republicans, we used to say were pro, pro-war, not pro-war, but pro-strong military, which is where we are now, pro-strong military, and it will actually lead to a more peaceful uh, country, more peaceful nation. I want to play you two quick things I want to be sure and share with you. Uh, one is, when Congressman Roy was here, um, he, I'm going to put a comma there. I want to play one thing uh, for you. Uh, this was a... Um, speech that uh, a warning speech that president trump just gave president trump gave these remarks 
um, which were about the danger we're in because of the terribly weakened condition that our country finds itself in under President Biden. He's warning, Trump is warning, we're heading toward war because of the policies of the Biden administration. Here's what Trump had to say. World War III has never been closer than it is right now. We need to clean house of all of the warmongers and America last globalists in the deep state, the Pentagon, the State Department, and the national security industrial complex. One of the reasons I was the only president in generations who didn't start a war is that I was the only president who rejected the catastrophic advice of many of Washington's generals, bureaucrats, and the so-called diplomats who only know how to get us into conflict, but they don't know how to get us out. For decades, we've had the very same people, such as Victoria Nuland and many others just like her, obsessed with pushing Ukraine toward NATO, not to mention the State Department support for uprisings in Ukraine. These people have been seeking confrontation for a long time, much like the case in Iraq and other parts of the world. And now we're teetering on the brink of World War III. And a lot of people don't see it, but I see it. And I've been right about a lot of things. They all say Trump's been right about everything. None of this excuses in any way the outrageous and horrible invasion of Ukraine one year ago, which would have never happened if I was your president, not even a little chance. But it does mean that here in America, we need to get rid of the corrupt globalist establishment that has botched every major foreign policy decision for decades. And that includes President Biden, whose own people said he's never made a good decision when it comes to looking at other countries and looking at wars. We have to replace them with people who support American interests. Over our four years in the White House, we made incredible progress in putting the America last contingent aside and bringing the world to peace. And now we're going to complete the mission. The State Department, Pentagon, and National Security Establishment will be a very different place by the end of my administration. In fact, just into my administration, it'll be a very different place. And it'll get things done, just like I did four years ago. We never had it so good. We'll also stop the lobbyists and the big defense contractors from going in and pushing our senior military and national security officials toward conflict, only to reward them when they retire with lucrative jobs, getting paid millions and millions of dollars. Take a look at the globalist warmonger donors backing our opponents. That's because they're candidates of war. I am the president who delivers peace, and it's peace through strength. There was a reason we had no conflict. There was a reason we didn't get into wars, because other countries respected us. I entirely built all right from the beginning, rebuilt our military. It's a big reason for that. They didn't want to mess around with the United States, and now they're laughing at us. We could end the Ukraine conflict in 24 hours with the right leadership. At the end of my next four years, the warmongers and frauds and failures of the senior ranks of our government will all be gone, and we will have a new group of competent national security officials who believe in defending America's vital interests above all else. Thank you very much.
And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you for tuning in to this very special Thursday show of America Can We Talk. Tune in, please, every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. Can We Talk? Truth About America.